Hello, listeners. Just a quick announcement before we get started. As some of you have probably heard in the news, Brendan Dassey's 2005 conviction was overturned on Friday, and he'll be released from his life sentence within 90 days unless prosecutors file an appeal. This happened after we recorded this episode, changing some of the things discussed, but it's still an interesting episode and worth the listen. Also, if you want more specifically on Brendan Dassey, check out the Defending Brendan Dassey of Making a Murderer episode on Planet Lex. Steve Drizzen and Laura Nyrider discuss representing Dassey during the appeal process. It's a great episode. You can listen to it on LegalTalkNetwork.com or by searching Planet Lex, that's L-E-X, on iTunes or your podcast app. That's all. Enjoy the episode. The issues that Making a Murderer raised, you know, in the frame of two men's individual journeys through the justice system, but the issues in that frame really were much bigger and raised systemic questions about the administration of criminal justice in this country, or really in any country. In the Dassey case, they really focused on his confession, on the stabbing. In the Avery case, the stabbing is never mentioned. The method of death is the shooting, and it just, I was, again, just stunned how you can prove the same crime happened almost in two different ways. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites and uh, also co-host another Legal Talk Network program called Law Technology Now, along with Monica Bay. Before we introduce today's topic, I'd like to just take a moment to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio is the world's leading cloud-based legal practice management software. Thousands of lawyers and legal professionals trust Clio to help grow and simplify their practices. You can learn more about Clio at Clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. Well, Stephen Avery spent 18 years in prison in Wisconsin for rape before DNA evidence exonerated him, and he was released in 2003. Two years later, as Avery was in the midst of a $36 million lawsuit against the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department over his wrongful arrest and imprisonment, And just shortly after his lawyer had deposed some of the key targets of that lawsuit, Avery and his nephew, Brendan Dassey, were arrested for the murder of Teresa Hallback, a photographer who had come to Avery's property to take pictures of a vehicle he had for sale. The resulting investigation and 2007 trial was made into the Netflix documentary series Making a Murderer. The documentary, which raised questions about whether the sheriff's department had framed Avery, became a sensation and made stars of Avery's defense lawyers, Dean Strang and Jerry Buting. In the end, Avery was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. A new attorney has now taken on Avery's case, and perhaps not surprisingly, Netflix has recently announced that it will produce more episodes following Avery's continuing fight to prove his innocence. Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to talk about this case and talk about the documentary with 
one of Avery's defense lawyers, as well as with one of the news reporters who covered the trial. So let me begin by uh, introducing our guests. And first of all, I'm uh, happy to welcome to uh, Lawyer to Lawyer, Dean Strang, along with Jerry Buting, was one of the attorneys who represented Stephen Avery. Dean is a criminal defense lawyer in Madison, Wisconsin. In addition to uh, being known for uh, his work in the Avery trial, he uh, is also well known for his first book, Worse Than the Devil, Anarchists, Clarence Darrow, and Justice in a Time of Terror. Dean served five years as Wisconsin's first federal defender, co-founded the law firm Strang Bradley LLC. He's also an adjunct professor at Marquette University Law School, University of Wisconsin Law School, and University of Wisconsin's Division of Continuing Educations. Dean is a member of the American Law Institute and serves on several charity boards, including the Wisconsin Innocence Project. His second book will be published early in 2018. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Dean Strang. Thank you for having me. And uh, next, I would like to introduce Peter Linton-Smith. Peter was a television news reporter for 24 years, covering primarily courts. Peter has covered cases ranging from first-degree murder, wrongful death, products liability, copyright dispute, employment and labor disputes. Peter was one of the reporters who covered Stephen Avery's trial, both his, his civil case and his criminal case, between 2003 and 2007. He currently works at a law firm in Denver, Leventhal and Fuga in Denver, Colorado. Welcome to the show, Peter Linton-Smith. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, thanks. Dean, I, I want to ask you, in one of the early episodes, it went not long after you had come on to the program uh, as one of Stephen Avery's defense counsel, there was a, a clip in which you're watching news video on a monitor in which, as I recall, it was the sheriff who said something along the lines of, why would I frame him when I could have just killed him? Did you at that point or, or at any point question what the heck you'd gotten yourself into here? <laughs> um, I certainly did at that point and probably at other points uh, or at least reflected on what an atypical case Stephen Avery's was just, you know, for the, the massive pretrial publicity it received and also the intersection of the civil lawsuit against the sheriff's department with its, you know, initially hidden and then, and then later slowly revealed role in the investigation of the ensuing murder case. You and, uh, Jerry Buting are currently on a nationwide tour. You're calling a conversation on justice in which you're discussing the larger implications of the case. I read that at least part of what motivated you and Jerry to want to launch this tour was what you perceived as a lack of depth in news media coverage of the case. What was it that you wanted the public to understand about this case that you felt was not being conveyed to them through news coverage? Well, you're, you're describing accurately our motivation, but understand that that motivation arose after Making a Murderer came out in December 2015. And what Jerry and I reacted to then was the tendency, especially, it seemed to us at least worse at the national level, of large media outlets to spend 90 seconds or two minutes or maybe three minutes at most interviewing us or others who had participated in making a murderer and to delve no more deeply than, you know, than to discuss internet memes or 
you know, overnight pop culture phenomena that, that we were uh, supposed to be. And Jerry and I both thought there was a great deal more to say about the issues that making a murderer raised, you know, in the frame of two men's individual journeys through the justice system. But the issues in that frame really were much bigger and raised systemic questions about the administration of criminal justice in this country or really in any country. Jerry and I thought a lot of those were worthy of a long-form conversation, which is why we were drawn not just to the idea of a speaking tour, if you will, um, to the general public, but also to long-form fora like this podcast, for example, or other lengthier, more thoughtful interviews. Peter Linton-Smith, you were there covering this case how well do you think the news media did in reporting on the trial and on some of the broader issues that it raised about the justice system? I've got some mixed feelings about how the media did. Since I'm no longer a member of the media, I can, I'm, I'm free to opine on our performance back then. I think to a certain extent, it is difficult to cover the Avery story with all its complexity, with all its levels, in the day-to-day media. I think the television media, the newspaper media, the radio folks who report on a daily basis did a reasonably good job on covering the hits, runs, and errors. But I think just by virtue of the constraints of time, they have difficulty really digging deeper into the broader criminal justice issues. So To a certain extent, I kind of give them a pass on that. But I also think that there was a tendency, I mean, the media is, you know, a a human endeavor, and reporters tend to follow the path of least resistance. This was a case where there was the proverbial truckload of evidence, and they simply, again, pursued the path of least resistance. All the evidence is there. It's likely that he did it. I think the good news here is, though, that the kind of news media attention that was generated by the case ultimately led to the making of a murderer and this deeper reflection on the criminal justice system as a whole, and this case in particular. What about that documentary? The the documentary has received its share of criticism uh, by those who say it was skewed in Avery's favor, that it left out critical evidence that was unfavorable to him. Dean, let me ask you first, how fair or accurate do you think the documentary was in presenting what what happened in this case? I think the editorial choices the filmmakers made were consistently fair. And that's not to say that the narrative, the viewer of making a murderer, sees and hears and is left with is congruent with the predominant narrative you would have heard through the print and electronic media at the time of the trial. And part of that, though, is just attributable, I think, to a couple of pretty straightforward factors. One, Peter is exactly right. The media on a day-to-day basis operate within a whole set of time constraints viewership constraints, commercial constraints 
that really don't apply or bind at all a film or a, or a series, whatever you know you would call uh, Netflix presentation of Making a Murderer. Second, the family of the accused here cooperated with the filmmakers. So you got to know Mr. Avery's mother, uh, Brendan Dassey's grandmother. Um, you got to know his sister, who's Brendan Dassey's mother, his father. You saw them at home, and they, you know they became three-dimensional people in a way that just does not happen in, again, day-to-day media coverage, as Peter put it, with hits, runs, and errors. And for very understandable reasons, the Halbach family decided not to participate in the documentary. No criticism at all of them for that decision on my part. I would have made the same decision had I been, you know, forced into their unfortunate shoes. But but they didn't. So you didn't see the victim's family. And the prosecution team chose not to participate, whereas the defense team did participate. You know, that wasn't the fault of the filmmakers. They asked everybody. They sought everybody's participation. But the choices that lawyers, law enforcement people, and then family members, both of the victim's family and and the accused family made, I think to some extent influenced heavily the narrative that the filmmakers did and could present. Peter, what about from where you sat? What was your perception of the documentary uh, and how it compared to what you saw happen as a news reporter there? I thought the documentary was excellent. And um, if you spend any amount of time in the media, you're going to be accused from time to time of doing a story that may be unfair to one side or the other. And the reaction that I would get from people when I told them my feelings raised a few eyebrows. And I would tell them, look, I'm not obligated to give you a fair story. I'm obligated to give you fair reporting. And you have as much to do with the end result of this story as I do. In the media, there is no formal discovery process. We don't have subpoena power. And so all we can do is ask for your side of the story. And as Dean pointed out, uh, the filmmakers in this case gave the same opportunities to the state that they gave to the defense, and the state opted not to participate. And I think it's a little disingenuous at this point, once the film has come out, to complain that it's in some way one-sided. What I think the filmmakers did was, quite frankly, bend over backwards to try and show the state's side of the case. I didn't hold a stopwatch to it, But I think the amount of time that the state was on camera versus the amount of time that Dean and Jerry were on camera was roughly equivalent. And the end result is largely the result of the decisions made by the parties involved to participate or not to. And, you know, the viewer is left with that end product. And I think the end product may have been somewhat favorable to Avery, But I think in the end, it was fair. Well, one of the things we saw because of the fact that, uh, as Dean said, the defense team agreed to cooperate with the filmmakers was some of the conversations, Dean, between you and and Jerry outside of the courtroom as you were sitting around strategizing about the case or meeting with family members. You know, I think a lot of lawyers are still not even comfortable with the idea of cameras in the courtroom. I'm wondering, 
what it was like to put on a defense with cameras looking over your shoulder even outside the courtroom? Were, were you ever afraid that the presence of the cameras would somehow detract from your defense? Yes, and it was uncomfortable. Uh, I think more for me than for Jerry, actually, um, just because of our different temperaments. The filming in the courtroom was not at all uncomfortable because it was almost invisible to the participants. That courtroom, you know, was set up for the media. So the cameras were small and ceiling mounted. They were remotely controlled from a media room right behind the gallery in the courtroom. So that was easy. And the only the only awareness, a reminder that we had in the courtroom that we were being filmed is we were, the judge asked us to wear lavalier mics. Outside the courtroom was very different, as you point out, Bob. There, it, it was a camera, you know, um, and some degree of setup. Now, the filmmakers had a small crew at the time. They were quick at setting up and then taking down. So it was as unintrusive as it could be, and they also didn't chase us. You know, they scheduled uh, times with us when they could film us. But I was very self-conscious about it. I wasn't worried by the time we actually did it about privilege issues because we had we had sorted those out with the filmmakers. There, you know, there was a just a firm line that we wouldn't cross. We wouldn't disclose privileged communications. There's a separate ethical issue, as lawyers know, on confidential information related to a representation. And with that, we couldn't have participated, really, without the client agreeing to allow us to share confidential as opposed to privileged information. So there he agreed, you know, the client and his family very much wanted us to participate in the film once we joined the defense about four months after Mr. Avery was charged and almost four months after the filmmakers had set up camp and begun work on the film. But I never really did get terribly comfortable, you know, sort of with the out of court sitting on the sofa kind of stuff, um, or being filmed in the car. I, when I look at making a murderer, I see and hear a Dean Strang who's conscious of a camera. Dean, I know that I'm going to lose you in just a couple of minutes because you have a conflict. If you have a moment, as you're going around on the speaking tour, I know you've talked a lot about uh, the need for people to work to improve the criminal justice system. There was a line in the documentary, I think it was Jerry, who said, uh, good luck in this criminal justice system if you are ever accused of a crime. What's your message as you're going around speaking? What are you telling people they should be doing to bring about change in this system? Well, first of all, accepting that it's fallible and, and looking past the often blustery insistence of judges, prosecutors, defense lawyers, police officers that, you know, our, that the outcomes are highly reliable and that justice has been done. I think the public needs to take a lot less of that at face value and, and to be much more skeptical of claims of the reliability of our system. Uh, I think, you know, people also need to engage with the humanity of the various actors in the system, people involuntarily drawn in like victims and the accused or their respective families and the people voluntarily 
who work in the system as its professionals. And when I say engage with the humanity of these people, understand that we've got all the usual human strengths and weaknesses. We have good days and bad days. Uh, we act on, you know, motives that are pure and noble in some ways and entirely impure and ignoble in other ways. And, you know, just being aware of this and I, and I guess trying to get a peek into the black box that is a courthouse. Uh, and then we've also urged people really to take on with less reluctance the role of juror when their time comes and understand how hard that role is to perform honestly and courageously, but how important it is and how, you know, we, Jerry and I both made the point a number of times that when you serve as a courageous and honest juror in either a civil or a criminal case in our system, you're upholding the very same value that United States Armed Forces get sent to Afghanistan or Iraq or other foreign battlefields to uphold. And you get to do it at home without the threat that somebody will blow up your Humvee. So we've tried to give something of a pep talk uh, to people, both on engaging with the system in whatever ways excite them, you know, whatever ways pull them in, whether that's victims' rights, fully informed juries, racial disparities, judicial elections, whatever it is that lights you up, mandatory minimum sentences, the death penalty for it or against it, you know, to try to get people to engage as good citizens in that respect and to work with the humanity of the system, but then also to, um, you know, to grab and make the best of the opportunity to serve as a juror when it comes around. Dean, I, I think you have to drop, unless I'm wrong. Love to have you longer, but uh, if I you do. need to go, uh, I do. let me uh, let you go. Peter, maybe you could stay with us for a, a moment. Uh, sure. And Dean, let me just thank you very much for taking the time to be with us. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you today. Thanks, Bob, and um, good to hear Peter as always. It's good to hear you, Dean. Thanks a lot, Dean Strang, one of the defense attorneys in Making a Murderer. And before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. Clio is an invaluable software solution for law firms of all sizes, handling all the demands of your growing practice from a single cloud-based platform. Clio enhances your firm with features such as matter and document management, time tracking, and even billing. Clio is an effortless tool that helps lawyers focus on what they do best, practice law. Learn more at Clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrogi, and we're talking today with Dean Strang, the defense lawyer, one of the defense lawyers in the documentary Making a Murderer, and also Peter Linton-Smith, one of the uh, news reporters who covered the trial. Peter, before I let you go, I, I just wanted to give our audience to hear a little bit more from you. I mean, after your experience of covering this trial, I can only imagine that uh, those in the media pool had any number of, of conversations uh, during uh, downtimes during this trial about what was happening there. But what was your takeaway you know, about the criminal justice system, not just from here, but from covering it for years? It was by far 
one of the most interesting stories I've ever covered, but at the same time, it was one of the most disturbing. Um, I think the general feeling among the media was privately when Avery was arrested that this was most likely going to be a not guilty by reason of insanity plea. You have to keep in mind that um, in 2000, late 2003 through 2004, Avery had really become the name associated with wrongful convictions in the state of Wisconsin, if not in, in the country, in large part because of, if not outright, law enforcement misconduct, certainly law enforcement sloppiness in 1985. He spent 18 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. He turns around and sues and then gets arrested. And when the defense began, or the defense case began to emerge, I think the feeling, again, privately among the media was this is never, this is never going to work. It's just not plausible. And then as the evidence began to develop and materialize, it was, it was surprising. I, I think we have this predisposition to trust law enforcement, to trust the criminal justice system, our judges, our prosecutors. But when you look at this case, it is very, very difficult for anyone, I think, to take an objective look at this case and say that law enforcement functioned well, that the prosecution functioned well, and that the, the criminal justice system functioned well. And uh, it's, it's a frightening case because it, it, it's a story that could happen to anyone. Was there anything from your perspective in the courtroom that either the defense uh, team or the prosecution team did during the course of the trial that, from your perspective, really made a difference in how the case turned out? I don't think anything, either side, did anything specifically with regard to how the case turned out. And I think it's, it's one of the things that I'm glad that the series has done, the, the Netflix series has done, is sparked this deeper, broader conversation about the criminal justice system. I think that when we think about the criminal justice system, we have these things of presumption of innocence, burden of proof, guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And I don't think we really apply the fact that these are not just abstract concepts. These are actual things written into jury instructions. And in this case, I am still, frankly, baffled as to how the jury came up with the verdict that they did. I've sat in courts for 20-plus years, and I've attempted to put myself in the position of a juror and try to understand how they connected each evidentiary dot to the other and reached the verdict that they did. And in this case, I just cannot quite understand how they reached that verdict. And when the deliberations went on as long as they did, the, the conventional wisdom is that the longer the jury is out, the more favorable it is to the defendant. Right. And they were out uh, for a Thursday afternoon, all day Friday, all day Saturday, and uh, actually asked permission to come back and deliberate on Sunday and did so all that day. And the verdict came in on the Sunday evening about 6 o'clock. And um, when it came back, guilty on the first-degree murder, but not guilty on the mutilation of a corpse, even the verdict form itself just didn't add up. Right. So, Did you make an attempt to interview any of the jurors after the case? And no, and they have maintained their silence throughout. And um, in the series 
Only the juror who was dismissed because his daughter had been in a car accident during the deliberation spoke. And that's the only thing we have gotten from any of the jurors. They have maintained some sort of a pact through all these years, surprisingly, not to speak publicly. And I'm still surprised that there hasn't been a crack in that armor. And did you cover any of the Brendan Dassey case? I did. Was there a contrast uh, that you saw in that trial versus Avery's trial, either in how the cases were presented or just how they were received by the public? Well, the uh, the key difference, of course, in the Avery and the Dassey case was that uh, Dassey's confession was the key piece of evidence in his case. And, of course, there was quite a bit of discussion around the alleged stabbing of Teresa Halbach. What I found interesting was that you almost had two different theories of the case based on the same crime. Um, In the the Dassey case, they really focused on his confession, on the stabbing. In the Avery case, the stabbing is never mentioned. The method of death is the shooting. And it just, I was, again, just stunned how you can prove the same crime happened almost in two different ways. Yeah, what troubled me most about watching the documentary about the Dassey case was the initial defense attorney here, Len Kaczynski, who just seemed to not just offer a poor defense, but almost a a defense orchestrated against his client. And uh, there was the scene in the documentary, I I don't know whether any of this, I guess some of this came out during the trial of uh, Kaczynski's investigator questioning Brendan Dassey, and the documentary almost made it seem as if he was attempting to... uh, very clearly steer him toward a particular statement into making a confession. That was, I don't know that if any of that also, came out in the trial, but it was just awful. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was pretty stunning. At the time of the trial and the time of the case, none of us in the media knew just how bad things had gotten with uh, Kaczynski. We knew that the primary reason for his replacement was the tension between the Dassey family and their claim of lack of um, aggressive defense, and so he was replaced. And so what we knew at the time was that there was this difference of opinion. We just didn't realize just how bad things had gotten. And um, it's it's surprising that he was taken off the public defender list for only six months for his conduct in that case. Well, uh, Peter, we're just about at the end of our time for this program. And uh, if you'd care to offer any final thoughts about this experience, about your coverage of the case, about the documentary, anything at all, we'd welcome you to do that at this point. Sure. Well, the case is not over. As you know, that um, Avery does have a new set of attorneys, and uh, she has a a fairly good track record of um, winning exonerations or freeing those who have been wrongfully accused. And she has at least suggested that there is some new physical evidence, some new evidence that may actually confirm or at least corroborate the allegations of a frame-up. Her motions for a new trial are currently due on August 29th, so I've definitely got that circled on my calendar. I can't wait to see the motion. And of course, as we're recording this, uh, just yesterday there was news that Stephen Avery had written a letter to a magazine, uh, In Touch Weekly, in which he claimed his attorneys did not 
effectively represent him and did not effectively I uh, saw that. I was, I was actually a little surprised by it um, because I will tell you, having covered courts for 20-plus years, I don't think I have ever seen a more vigorous defense or two better advocates for their clients than Dean Strang and Jerry Buting. They did a masterful job. I suspect that Stephen is frustrated as well. He should be. He's he's lost another nine years of his life, and um, you know it's understandable that he would lash out somewhere. But I, I think that um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens on August 29th. It will be. Well, uh, Peter Linton Smith, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us. It's really been interesting to hear your perspective on this case. Thank you, Bob. That brings us to the end of this episode of Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrogi. We appreciate your listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.